I just, I, it's okay. Look, I need to like get this. Yes, we are actually live now. And uh, yeah, hello everyone. Welcome to the weekly live streaming show of What is School For? My name is I. Uh, I'm the CEO of Classroom Without Wars and the host of this weekly live streaming show. You can also listen to us on the traditional audio-only podcast. Just search what is school for. So on this show, I interview leading leaders, leaders, educators, teachers, parents, entrepreneurs, business owners, and students and parents to come here to discuss, debate, and disrupt education. Our goal is to future-proof the next generation. Today, I'm really, really extremely honored and excited to have Shannon Gopin on the show to talk about her incredible journey to make uh, such a big difference you know, on a global scale. So Shannon is the very first woman who mountain biked in Afghanistan where riding a bicycle is actually illegal. And I actually didn't even know that. I learned a lot from her to get prepared for this interview. And Shannon is an author, an artist, and a global activist. So she started her movement in Afghanistan and brought that movement to a global scale. And she is the National Geographic Adventure of the Year uh, recipient. And she's a former uh, founder and CEO of Mountain to Mountain. And she is a multiple TEDx speaker. And Shannon's work has been featured in the New York Times, NPR, NBC, BBC, CNN, and numerous other places. So besides being an artist and uh, author, global activist, Shannon is also an incredible mom. And she actually homeschooled her daughter for some time in a very non-traditional way. And we're going to dive into that. How did she homeschool her daughter? And she's actually homeschooling her daughter right now. And they're also working on a book together. So we're also going to talk about that. And overall, overall, you are in for a treat. Shannon is an incredible woman. And I feel really inspired and just honored to have a conversation with her. And as always, a big shout out to StreamYard for being a sponsor of Classroom Without Wars. Over the last several years, I have tried so many uh, different third-party tools to go live. StreamYard is my number one choice. It's my favorite. In the comment section, there's a link for you to check out StreamYard for free for two weeks. Check it out and send me a message if you have any questions. We are live on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on YouTube, on Periscope, on Twitch. And let me know in the comment section where you guys are joining us live from, social media-wise and geographically speaking. Without any further ado, my friend, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Wow. Like, of course, of course. And all, the, all the things. Yes. So before we went live, I actually told Shanna, I invited my husband, I invited my children. That's how much I feel inspired by your story and by your journey. And uh, so I can't wait to help more people get inspired and discover your amazing story doing what you do. So let's get started so people can learn more about you. As I mentioned earlier, you know, you are the very first woman who mountain biked uh, in Afghanistan. And so, so tell that story and why Afghanistan and why bicycle? 
Well, I always I always start off with I never planned to mountain bike in Afghanistan. Like that was never intention. Um, when I went to Afghanistan, I was there working with women and girls. Uh, I was there doing human rights work, and I, you know, I went to Afghanistan in 2008, um, and I was there to see if I had. Um, if basically I went to Afghanistan to see if I had a, a role to play working with women and girls. And mm -hmm. when I started working in Afghanistan, uh, I realized that I saw bikes everywhere and I'm an avid mountain biker. I, I live and work in Colorado. That's how I raised my daughter and I saw bikes everywhere. So I'm just inherently mm -hmm. kind of zoned in on bikes, but it was all, all men and boys. And so I saw bikes in cities, bikes in rural areas, but never women. If I saw women at all on bikes, they were riding side saddle. Mm. And bikes are inherently uh, and historically a incredible vehicle for social justice. Uh, They're an mm. incredible vehicle for access um, around the world, you know, throughout Africa, Southeast Asia, in rural communities that don't have a lot of vehicles, they're an incredible equalizer. Um, they're cheap in every country, they're, they're easy to get, um, but if girls can't ride them, you know, there's a, when there's a gender equity barrier, mm -hmm. um, then that's still um, something I was very curious about. And so essentially in Afghanistan, I very quickly realized through my work and traveling there, over multiple visits that I, as a foreigner and as a white foreigner, um, I had, and I say that because I had um, a lot of friends who were Costa Rican who, who mm. blended better than I did, um, that mm. it was something that in some instances could be, um, I could be targeted because I, I looked very different. I'm, I'm five foot nine, uh, white and blonde. But it also could be used as a way to, um, it could be used to my advantage, essentially, because for Afghan men, if you, um, if you are right off the bat looking non-Afghan, then they treat you like an honorary man. Oh, wow. They just, they assume that you are um, essentially outside of the rules of Afghan women, while mm -hmm. that is not um, and while um, while I you know that that is something that I I really struggled with um, as I'm working with Afghan women and girls. At the same time, it was a way for me to challenge the barriers that Afghan women had to ask questions. Why mm -hmm. barrier here? Because Afghan women at the time were boxing. Afghan women like it was this period post Taliban where women. Um, were parliamentary members. They were becoming judges. There was mm -hmm. a woman become an Air Force pilot. They were breaking all these barriers, but they couldn't ride bikes. And so a couple of years into uh, me working in Afghanistan, I decided that I would mountain bike as a way to challenge that gender barrier and to find out why was this essentially the one of the last few barriers in Afghanistan to be broken? Um, why was it mm. such a wow? What a I mean, uh, what a journey! What a what a story! I know that I know that to make this happen, 
you also kind of like sold your house, changed your career path, as you shared in quite a few interviews. And uh, so when you like, what is going through your mind as you were trying to make this decision? I mean, I know at the time you are already a mom. So kind of leave that and to devote yourself to this really incredible mission. And were you ever afraid? And what are some like challenges that you had to overcome to make this a movement, like to make this a reality? Yeah, to start the nonprofit, to to change my career, um, to start working in Afghanistan um, was a huge was a huge shift financially. Um, I, mm -hmm. I had to kind of be willing to take a massive risk and 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 jump off the deep end and and mm -hmm. having a was a two-year-old daughter at the time. Um, I had divorced, um, and I, I really had you know nothing financially. I, I invested what little I had, got rid of everything else I had, you know, rented a tiny little apartment. Um, but it really was the desire to, you know, I always say that looking back, it it, it comes from a couple of different places. It was a desire as a as a women's rights activist as a mother of a young daughter to make a difference in the world. Um, I'm a survivor of gender violence. I was raped when I was 18. Um, I wanted to understand the ingredients that were um, necessary in a society for widespread gender violence. Afghanistan at the time was ranked, you know, repeatedly number one, number two in the world for gender violence against women. And the longer that I worked in Afghanistan, you know, the irony being, you know, you always kind of focus over there, you know, somewhere over there as mm. where you're going to learn about the problems in the world. Um, and really, the more I worked in Afghanistan, the more I recognized there, there it's no different than uh, the problems that we have in America, you know, with gender violence. It's just mm. framed differently. Um, you know, the way we legislate, the way we, um, the way we, uh, our college campus rape, all the, all the things that, that I was trying to learn in Afghanistan because it was ranked so high with gender violence. Um, we have the same frameworks here in how we treat women. Um, and I knew that having been raped in this country, um, and yet, um, I didn't see the parallels until I was working in Afghanistan. Um, and the longer I worked in Afghanistan, the more I fell in love with Afghanistan um, and with mm -hmm. people I worked with in Afghanistan. Um, and the more I learned about, about just the global similarities around gender violence, around women's rights, around activism. And um, the more I explored Afghanistan because I started mountain biking in Afghanistan mm -hmm. and I explored Afghanistan without security, um, you know, as uh, a woman on a bike, on a motorcycle, uh, I skied with Afghan, with, uh, in Afghanistan on, you know, with the Afghan um, ski team. Um, wow. I've, I've got to explore Afghanistan in a way that Afghans see their country, not locked up in a car. That allowed me to, you know, see the country the same way we see every other country, um, you know, face to face, um, person to person. And yeah, without, yeah, 
That is so powerful because I also grew up in different country and coming to the United States when I was pretty young, and it is such an incredible experience to actually have a face-to-face -face conversation with someone that is beyond the media filters, right? All the biases, the selective messages that you have been receiving from the media. When you have real-time, real-life interactions with those people, you're like. Wow, you, you finally start to connect with the strangers, the other people at much a deeper and much more uh, emotional level. So I can definitely relate. Yeah, yeah. And I just want to uh, say a quick hi to quite a few people joining us live. Hello, Alice and Elizabeth. And yes, and she's a homeschooling mom. And we're definitely going to talk about homeschooling for sure. And Josiah, thank you so much for being here. And uh, Pooja and the Lance, thank you for joining us live from Australia and uh, Pooja from India. So really great to see all of you. So I'm curious, so how has this uh, very profound experience influenced you, what you do as a, an artist and as a mom? So can you share like some of the, the changes that, you know, that you have observed in yourself as a result of this? Well, definitely as an artist, my first, experience with public art um, and my own public installations and working with graffiti art and um, really how public art changes community, um, how it brings community together and really the power of voice through mm -hmm. public art was in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. um, my first main public art installation was in Afghanistan. And that was an installation called The Streets of Afghanistan. And it was a collaboration of Afghan photojournalists and foreign photojournalists, um, which I brought together and created a life-sized pop-up street art installation. And the idea was, is there, there's very, there's very few galleries. I mean, at the time there was no galleries, there was no public art. So the idea was to create these life-size pop-up uh, mm. photography installations and then travel them through public spaces, um, mm. gardens in Kabul and main streets throughout kind of the big market streets in little villages and allow Afghans to interact with their own images, which mm. there's so many photographers and photojournalists that come through Afghanistan, but then they take the images and then they're seen in other countries. And so bringing this installation to Afghans um, and then just setting it up, allowing them to interact with them um, and then popping it up in another place and just having these little one day pop up installations. That was my first interaction. Um, and then I helped support um, a, a collective combat communications, which set up the first graffiti art workshop for Afghan artists. And that spawned uh, in 2009, that spawned what is now a thriving graffiti art, mural art um, movement in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. There are several collectives. If you Google graffiti art or mural art in Afghanistan, you'll see several um, examples of you know, mural art that you could see in New York or LA or anywhere, you know, incredible muralists that they're using street art because Kabul has blast walls in front of all, you know, every major building. Mm -hmm. You have this 
canvas around Kabul and they're using public art to have a voice around corruption, women's art, uh, women's voices, women's rights, peace, um, you know, all sorts of themes that are incredibly important to youth and they're using their blank canvases and their talent now that they know how to, um, you, know, you, you know, now they know how to use spray cans and, and mural techniques and they're mm -hmm. teaching each other and, I mean, that's 2009, so, you know, what, 10, 11, 12 years later, you have a movement in, in Kabul. And so that really informed a lot of the work that I do now with my own street art and, and mural art um, back here in the country, and that I've now used in collaboration with my own daughter. And my daughter has uh, worked with a Mexican artist, Diana Garcia, on climate justice and wildlife extinction murals in France and the UK and in Denver. Incredible, incredible. So I, I, I love it. I, I have some follow up questions based on this. And so uh, Zizi is asking you to share your Instagram. So I'm going to share the screen uh, again. Oh, so sorry, wrong, wrong. So here is her. Uh, so Zizi, this is uh, Shannon's uh, Instagram. I'm also going to copy and paste this. Uh, in the comment section so that you you get this. And uh, so you I was actually to get prepared for the interview, I was looking through your uh, art installation and some amazing art creation. Uh, really uh, incredible, quite a quite an inspiration. And it is even more so that you know you are actually collaborating with your daughter. Is she also into yeah. like art? activism and I'm sure yes. your experience has a profound impact on her. So share that with us. She is. We were really lucky when we were when we were traveling for a year in world schooling, um, the focus of that was wildlife research. Um, you know, my, I was very lucky that my connections, um, one with you know being a National Geographic adventurer and a fellow with the Explorers Club, um, meant that I was able to tap into connections um, with wildlife researchers and biologists. And her passion is um, activism, but her passion is wildlife extinction, conservation. So we really focused like what is her passion? And she came up with um, the idea and we kind of collaborated on setting up a little organization at the time. It was little, she was 12, called Endangered Activism. And it was the idea of her focus being endangered species, but also that for youth, and this is you know pre-Greta, pre-youth um, climate marches, that, in, that activism for the youth was really challenging. It was hard for kids to TikTok. It was hard for kids to connect. It was hard for kids. Kids were being bullied if they were activists. So the idea of activism was endangered too, not just that endangered species um, you know, were the issue. And so while we were um, traveling and it was in collaboration with her father and his partner, we would, um, we kind of were in, in parallel. We weren't, you know, we would go back, she would go back and forth every other month. She was a month with them and then a month with me. The months that she was with me, it was focused on wildlife research. So we were in Namibia and we spent, we actually spent about six weeks traveling through Namibia and we would go meet with uh, wildlife biologists and, and scientists and conservationists and learn local solutions. And she, she just was there to listen. 
We're not there to the voluntourism. It's, it's not about, you know, uh, white Americans doing work it's about us listening. What are the solutions? What are the problems? And then we later were in Borneo um, doing the same thing. And we were in Argentina. And then it's about learning how, how is that all interconnected? How, what are the problems then back in Colorado? Because we have endangered species and Americans mm -hmm. are one of the buyers for the, the for wildlife trade. Mm -hmm. So rhino horn, you know, comes right through to Colorado where we have a um, this warehouse in Denver where a lot of the wildlife trade is housed that's seized in U.S. ports. And mm -hmm. so we were able to go to this, this warehouse of death that has rhino horn and elephant tusks and snow leopard pelts mm -hmm. and all of these you know, just horrible things that we'd seen trafficked and killed in Borneo and in, you know, and, and when we went tracking with rangers to see black rhino, we then are seeing black rhino horn in Denver and, and the whole circle of how these things are interconnected. Um, but she interviewed everyone. We videoed it all so that we can eventually find the funding now to make the documentary of one young girl who's 12 and 13 interviewing through a youth perspective, how are the solutions there? How is it all interconnected to climate change? Because Borneo versus Namibia versus Argentina versus Colorado versus, you know, um, you know all, all of the different places that we went, they're all different. You know, they all have different climate. They all have different problems. Um, but they all are interconnected to climate change. Um, and like we have this really great, we have this really great piece where there's a genetics lab in Namibia um, with the Cheetah Conservation Foundation. And it's the only this high, high tech genetics lab where they're studying cheetah diversity. Mm -hmm. And okay, this PhD genetics guy, okay, this 12 year old, please dumb it down so that she can understand that all you're doing is taking cheetah poop and you're then figuring out cheetah diversity to understand, you know, and he's writing all of these equations on a whiteboard about genetics. And she's just like, uh-huh. Okay, no. <laughs> she's 12. It's like this high-level math about genetics. But she's we have it all videoed and uh you know it's an incredible education wow. on the road that you know we get to do and 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 what she then how this relates back to art is that through this she is trying to synthesize how does she want to share that with the general public like mm. she have her own voice and she Ended up partnering with a Mexican artist, Diana Garcia, who we knew through a mutual friend, whose street art she adored and is a wheat paster. And wheat paste is a technique where you draw or photograph, um, create your art, and you print it, and then you essentially glue it, you wheat paste it to the wall. So it's very easy to collaborate. It's very easy for anyone to be able to create this. Um, you don't have to be a painter. You don't have to be a highly skilled artist. You can collaborate. Kids can wheat paste. 
Um, and Diana agreed to collaborate with Devon and together they came up with a whole series of endangered species based on what Devon's research was that um, they then met up in Paris, which was one of our last stops, um, a place that Devon and I, I kidding, <laughs> a place that Devin and I spent a lot of time. Uh, we knew Paris very well. I had lived there um, in my 20s and I had worked there several times since. Um, and we, so we met up in Paris. Um, Diana printed the pieces before we, before we got there and brought them with her. And we took over Paris completely illegally because um, Paris is great that way. And we installed 13 walls and pasted a whale's tail in the canal um, and mm -hmm. left all of these endangered species across the city of Paris. Wow, I'm just like sitting here imagining and seeing all the images in my mind. I love uh, what, you know, uh, what Alice mentioned here, you know, like this, to me, this is a real learning, you know, at Classroom Without Walls, we say the best education happens outside the classroom. It's exactly what you have shared with us, Shannon. I'm so inspired. And earlier you mentioned, like, I think many of us are familiar with the concept of, you know, unschooling, hope schooling, but you mentioned the word schooling. I want to make mm -hmm. sure everyone caught that. So like for those people who are not familiar, so what do you mean by word schooling? So explain that to us a little bit more. I am fascinated by that concept. I learned it while we were traveling. Someone else used it um, because it was this idea that so I think it was someone who who um, they they had used it. They were there were families that uh, a lot of families who um, travel by boat. You know, they live on their boats and they travel you know around the world by boats and and they were using that term. And I thought, wow, that's actually way more apt because mm -hmm. we don't have a home. We're living out of one bag. We don't have a home back home because we'd given up our home. I had no home. I had a storage unit with a few things left in it. And so I'd kind of given everything up twice. Um, you know, that was, we just financially, that was our choice. We don't, we couldn't do both. So our home was on the road in one suitcase. Um, so really for us, the world was our school and the world was our home. And it felt more apt for what we were doing. It was taking we didn't have a curriculum to follow. The only curriculum was math. We were following Khan Academy's um, math for the school, um, which was algebra at the time. And other than that, it was where were we at the time? You know, if we were in, for example, Borneo was a great example. Um, when we were in Borneo, yes, we were doing mostly field research. We were literally you know, on the Kinabatangan River tracking pygmy elephants, and we were learning about the um, palm oil, um, you know, situation and how that was changing, not just the environment, not just how that affected the wildlife, but also how it was affecting the communities. How did it affect, affect the economy of the villagers that had grown up on the riverbanks, their entire you know, generation after generation after generation, mm -hmm. the palm oil companies were displacing them. So how did that affect your know, community? Then Devin had been fascinated by World War II. So she had been learning about, you know, certainly Anne mm -hmm. Frank, most kids at that age do, they read the Anne Frank diaries, but she had always 
learned about World War II as American children do from European theater. They learn about the Nazis, they learn about Germany. They, she is um, also a UK citizen because her father is English. So she had a little, you know, she had more of an English perspective of Normandy from the, from the Americans and the, the crossing of Dunkirk from the from UK side. But then we're in Borneo and she finds out that Borneo mm -hmm. has been bombed by the Allies. Mm -hmm. So then there's this whole World War II theme that comes in because, yeah, Borneo, it's it's literally World War II. Mm -hmm. Borneo's part of World War II. And so then she starts to look at it from, yeah, we hear about the Japanese, but we only hear about it from uh, Pearl mm -hmm. Harbor. That's our only yeah. perspective because we're only America. We only look at America. So then it's like, well, we flew in and out of Singapore. So we stopped and there was a museum in Singapore that looks at, at the Japanese um, perspective from Singapore, but also There we go, sorry. Um, oh, no worries. Yeah, you were talking about the Japanese Singapore, yeah. Yeah, and so I think we lost her again. But I'm just like so fascinated back. by your back. <laughs> Good. Okay. Maybe you can turn off the camera, Shannon. And I think sometimes that will help. Yeah, I love those questions that you guys shared with us. And um, and I, I love this concept of word schooling. Like how amazing it is if we can all take our kids, right? Like I love how she mentioned there's no curriculum and uh, how we are just like, there's no curriculum and oh, I also need to, to charge my computer and how there's no curriculum and uh, she and her daughter just like traveling and learning. And to me, that is really the, the best uh, education. Let me see if she's, you're back. My back? Yes, you are back, Shannon. Can you hear us? I can. Yeah, I mean, I'm so like sorry. Oh, don't worry about it. I know you are like up high in the mountains. So, <laughs> so don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And here's uh, like, that is a really uh, incredible story, right? Like how many countries did you guys go visit during that entire year? So I think, if I remember, I remember counting. Devin and I went to seventeen, wow. and then she went to a few more with her father. Her and I wow. actually tried not to go to too many. Which I mean, we were we weren't trying to go to a whole bunch. We were trying to like live in the countries mm -hmm. we went to. Um, no, it could, so it could be that she went to seventeen total. Okay. I mean, that is still a lot, right? So most American kids, when you think about it, their entire life is kind of in one location. Very few people will actually travel from one state to another state, right? So I think 
17, that's like how many countries, many people probably visit an entire life. I think that's incredible. Yeah. 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 It, it, yeah. Is a, it is a gift for sure. It is a huge That's amazing. Gift. Yeah. So here's a great question from uh, one of our live audience asking you, like, what benefits do you think or this unconventional schooling or work schooling has had over traditional schooling? Because before this, your daughter were like uh, like a traditional like high high school, right? Traditional middle school, like public school mm -hmm. student. And now you have this incredible, I think, which it's everyone's dream to do this type of schooling. So what are some like, what are some big changes you see and like advantages over the traditional approach? Um, for my daughter and for me, the advantages definitely are, um, she thrives mm. you know, with immersive learning. Like mm. she, her brain is very much like mine. Um, she thrives learning by doing, um, she thrives by, um, you know, if we're in a country, we're learning that language, we're learning, you know, by going to museums, we're learning by interactions with people and, and doing, you know, a walking tour, um, his, you know, historical tours. And that's how I learn best too. I was a very, I wasn't a good student, but I love learning. So mm. I'm a learner. I've had multiple careers, but not because I'm a good student. It's because mm -hmm. I'm a good learner and I love mm -hmm. learning. So I'm curious. And that's how I think she is too. But the disadvantages are also there. Um, you know, we were living out of one bag. We were, um, doesn't have a lot of interaction with other kids because mm -hmm. other kids are in school at the time that we're there. Um, we weren't, we weren't just like going to another country and staying there where then you would meet other kids or enroll in an, a, a sport or an art class or things where other kids would be. And then learning that language and interacting, we were, you know, somewhere for three weeks or we were doing field research. So she was with adults almost that entire time. And mm. she's good with adults. So mm. it, it so we're like, oh, it's okay, because she's so good with adults. But that's also, she's 12 and 13. She needs kids. So mm -hmm. that can be difficult. You have to really think about that a bit more than I than we did. We didn't, mm -hmm. we just didn't think that way um, mm -hmm. ahead of time. Um, so it's like, it has to fit that kids. My, mm -hmm. my child is, is more of an introvert who's really great with like, she'll be great in college because she has, she's already more good with, with older kids and adults. Mm. Some kids, like a lot of kids, they need big social groups. They want mm. big social groups. It just worked with my child in this mm. way. Um, and I think some of the disadvantages are um, just some classes, mm. science and math, not every like for my child the this the math in particular was really she she ended up do, doing really well but it was a battle mm. she you know, she, would have, she would have done better with a teacher that wasn't mm. Khan mm. she did great when she came back and plugged back into a regular school but there's definitely pros and cons um i wouldn't change a thing you know but there's definitely yeah. not all roses <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, definitely. I mean, like, I, I think even some of the disadvantages you mentioned, I think uh, research has shown like how important it is for kids to be in a mixed age environment, right? So the argument can also be made the other way because our kids, they're only half. Actually, I just finished reading this book talking about gender difference, especially uh, for teenagers, if their only like role models are from their peers, it's actually bad for them. So they need cross-generational like um, role model influence inf like role models like influence from those people which i think is exactly you know what you are doing with her i mean 12 13 years old interviewing those like local scientists was she like you, you mentioned that she's a bit uh, introverted was she scared to do this no. was that already outside her comfort zone or that's her comfort zone yeah wow she would have been uncomfortable with her peers but mm. she great with with older um mm. with older people i mean she was scared because it was an interview which mm. all of us are when we're first starting i mean i'm still nervous mm. you know with interviews mm. because okay you know this is someone who's an expert or you know but um like diana the artist was it was interesting because diana was uh late 20s i think 29 30 um and so here was like almost like a big sister or an aunt figure. Mm -hmm. And it was like, she's in a pod. Like she needed that at that time that they started, um, they spent like two weeks together. And, and so I just kind of stepped back and let those two do all mm -hmm. the installing. And I kind of was like the assistant. Mm -hmm. I stepped back and I didn't do any, I mean, it was so hard. I wanted to, I wanted to install <laughs> so bad. Um, but I just, I carried the bag. I carried the bags and I, I helped, I, you know, I know Paris so well. So I like, I now, I was the navigator. I, you know, like, okay, here's, you know, we need to get here. We need to go there. Like, you know, here's some of the sites that we can get to uh, for, you know, here's some possible wall locations. So I fed them. I got us to the wall locations and I carried bags and then I let them do all of the installations. I'm like, here you go. Because she had a mentor for that mm -hmm. time period that was just lively and, 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 you know, Diana's like this kind of hippie figure that she has an energy I don't have. Mm -hmm. And so good for her to have that where Devin, when she was interviewing adults was kind of had to be like more, she was a little, you know, a little bit more professional, a little stiffer, you know, she, it was kind of more work. And then when she got to do the art, oh, she just got to get messy. You know, and, and it, was a little, it was a little rebellious, you know, because it wasn't it wasn't authorized. And so and then after that, we were asked by the city of Oxford to to do the same installation officially. Wow. The first street art installation that the city of Oxford had ever, ever allowed because wow. Oxford, every building's you know, historical. Um, but they wanted to do something around climate and the environment. And, and so they let us do the, um, the historical covered market. And so we, and Diana couldn't come back. Um, it was about a month later. So Devin and I went and in England did the, this installation. And I basically let Devin, Devin now knew what she was doing. She'd been mentored. She knew what to do. So I then acted as Devin's assistant for that. You need two people to do these huge installations, but I let Devin tell me how she wanted to do it. And then I helped if she needed, um, you know, uh, if 
she needed some advice, but then the two of us did all the installations. Um, we let her have the authority of owning it. Wow, that's quite a, um, what an incredible experience. I'm sure this is something that she will cherish forever. And you, what you are doing as such an incredible mom, right? Like you are helping her, like building her leadership skills and uh, owning her own voice and how she wants to do this. Is there a way for us to to, to look at some of those murals, the, like some of the arts? Definitely, that you yeah. So on my, you, you showed my Instagram. Um, in my Instagram, in the, in the bio of my Instagram, it says uh, co-creator of endangered activism. And mm -hmm. that Instagram is essentially the, the Instagram for that page with Devin. And if you scroll down, it'll have a lot of the murals because we've done multiple together since in Colorado. Um, and it should have the link for Devin's as well. But it's um, at endangered underscore activism. And that's Devin and I's collaborative um, Instagram. And then Devin has also started doing her own art. She's doing a series of LGBTQ um, BLM stickers and pins and starting to do a lot of her own activism around. We, you know, we're both very engaged with um, Black Lives Matter and, and LGBTQIA issues. And she's taking on a lot more art around that as well. Um, but she's assisted on a Black Lives Matter mural that we did in town, um, which was a collaboration with a lot of um, Black and Latino and Indigenous artists. But we on Main Street, we did a huge road mural um, in front of Town Hall, and she did one of the letters for that. And she's, she's now finding her own and wanting, now that she's 16, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't want to collaborate with me as much. We still collaborate <laughs> on Indigenous. And now it's You're like, to not be in my shadow, which is good. She wants to, she feels like, okay, we collaborate on this, but I also need to assert who I am. And I'm 16. But I, you know. So. I, I mean, there are so many things I love about the story. I mean, as an educator, we always say that learning has to be personal. I love how those entire this entire journey learning journey so many projects are exactly designed based on her interests I and mean, she loves this right it is such a great way to mm -hmm. learn when you are learning what you love and still making such a such a global impact and um, I, I just love it so here's kind of a great question from apuja who is a young lady and she asked you know how can we uh embrace She's based in India. So how can we embrace ourselves about doing the things that makes us feel fulfilled? Like what you are doing, right? Doing the unthinkable and inspired how to overcome the hesitation when we have the idea, like when we have professionals around us. And yeah, so so her question is like, how can we be as brave as you and doing the unthinkable and overcome our own fear our own hesitation, or did you even have any fear before you embark on this entire journey, you know, work schooling and going to Afghanistan, making like starting a movement? Like, what is it in you? And not even to mention, I haven't even get to the personal part. You also survived two strokes, right? You lost language ability, mm -hmm. memory, short-term memory, long-term memory, and all those personal challenges. So what is it in you? that kept you going? And what some advice can you give to the young people out there? They can be as courageous as, courageous as you. Um, it's always a very hard question because it's so personal for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I 
think I always look at it this way. I I don't know why I don't have fear. And and and, and I'm sure that I do, but I don't have the fear of leaping. Um and so I think what it is, and I think why I'm not scared of leaping is that I I am not scared of failing because okay, so we fail. We just try we try it again, we try mm-hmm. something different. To me, the failing, and I think that's maybe why a lot of people are scared, is that, oh my God, what if I fail? And I look at the failing as the learning. I think that's why I'm not scared is if I fail, that means I'm learning. And then I try it again and I try it again. And and so um, there's two, and I think there's two things with that. There's a, an artist that I, that I follow who's in Denver, his, his, uh, um, his artist's name on Instagram is Detour. And mm-hmm. he's an African-American artist um, in Denver who every Tuesday, he does a t- Tuesday tips. And he is a phenomenal muralist. Um, And one of the things he said recently, I thought was really interesting because he was talking about painting a basketball court. He does does, does a myriad of murals and and projects. And one of the things I thought he said, he just said it kind of off the cuff, like, like it was a side thing, but to me it was the thing. And it resonated with me because I think that's how I operate, which was he'd never done a, he'd never painted a basketball court before before. And so someone asked him to paint basketball court and his first instinct was, okay. And then, so you say yes, and then you figure out how to do it. it. And to me, that's, that's the thing, especially as an artist, because what you're going to give up the opportunity to learn and then you know how to do it. And, and then you know how to do it. And then you'll, you can say yes to doing it a million times, or you Mm -hmm. could even pick a job to paint someone else's basketball court and then you can make money. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the thing with failing or the thing with fear is that I think it's rooted in the fear of failure. Mm-hmm. And I'm not scared to fail because I see failure as learning. And that's what gets people stuck. And also, um, I just, I, I, I think people see the, I think people are scared because they see, oh my gosh, it's so big. Mm. Like, so if you look at what I have done in my life, and so this young woman's question, um, if you look at what I have done or even what my daughter has done, you're like, oh my gosh, it's so much. Yeah, but it all started with just one little thing. Mm. I just, one little tiny thing. And then I did the next tiny little thing. And then I did the next tiny little thing. It didn't start big. It just started with one. T- it literally started with a question. I'm curious about this thing. And then I went to see what that answer was. And then the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. Um, so it's, it's not, it's not big. And so when you're doing it, it's not scary because when you're doing it, it's, it's a really tiny little step that is insignificant to anybody else seeing you do it. Mm. But then when all of those little things are together, then we're having this conversation about all of this stuff and a na- national geographic this or whatever. And it seems huge because it's 
all of these big, these little big, or all of these little baby steps. I love it. You know, one step at a time. I love that. That's kind of how I start my own business. You know, start before you are ready and then go figure it out. And wow. then I also love the story, like one step at a time. It's not like there's definitely no overnight, you know, what you have accomplished. And when I was reading everyone, when I was reading Shannon's bio, I was like, oh my God, there's more, there's more, there's more. I was like, so <laughs> impressed. But yeah, I just have to remember this is an entire, you know, like, Quite a few years professional you know like decades of experience that you have devoted to this yeah so i love that here's a great question from alice uh, based in the us and she's an amazing educator herself so like kind of following on what we were talking about regarding homeschooling mm -hmm. and education so if you could advise the k-12 system about changing its approach because I think you made a great point Shannon earlier you were talking about so much fear I think the fear in our students to a great extent is a result of our rigid educational system. And I see that in higher education, like more and more so over the last several years, the fear to make a mistake, the fear to get a B or C, the fear to not get an A is so strong. So what advice would you say and uh, to those like educators in the system, like to make some shifts, you know, to embrace more of this experiential learning and, you know, doing what you love, and any tips, advice? Oh, so <laughs> I don't know how how everyone feels about this, but uh, stop testing. Could we just stop the testing? Mm -hmm. like, eliminate testing. Mm -hmm. Because we see it in other countries that don't test. And the kids do fine. But I see how much angst it creates, but also just, wow. I mean, I know I don't want to put that on teachers because I, they don't have a choice, mm -hmm. but man, like the amount of time wasted teaching kids how to take a test, how to, how to pass a test. I'm not saying that if you're a teacher and you're teaching uh, algebra, that then you're not going to test your kids on what you're teaching them, but standardized tests, get them the hell out of our schools. Like, mm. I, I just do not see that being a beneficial system for our children. Um, too many kids that have learning disabilities um, that, you know, then cannot, cannot make that work for them. Um, but also just, I want my, I want my kid to be taught. I want my kid to be curious and want to learn and teachers, mm to teach um and i see them having all of that love crushed out of them and i see mm -hmm. all of the joy of learning crushed out of our kids so how is that working it isn't yeah you know, I, mean, I, don't, I don't see a, a c student succeeding less than an a student in mm -hmm. life but we think that that is somehow, you know, uh, a huge deal. But I mean, that's a, that's another discussion too um, of how we, you know, think that, you know, the, the grade matter uh, so much. But mostly, I think it's the standardized test. That would be my biggest thing. If I could, if I could change a magic wand, eliminate standardized tests. 
I mean, I love it. I, I, you can see from the comments, everyone says, yes, Shannon, go for it. I love it. Like, stop <laughs> testing. And uh, I, I saw great. I mean, I worked in education for, for. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, what we're saying, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, if the, the second magic wand would be every, every year, K through 12 are required. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are two like big, like you know, magic pills that we th we hope that we can just like, give to the like decision makers. We can make those things happen. But I really, I want to go back to what you mentioned about Grace. I mean, like you are definitely not the first person I have interviewed. So many uh, pre uh, like like you, you know, influential people on my show. They were like, yeah, like nobody ever asked me where did I go to school. Nobody ever asked me what what my grades are. Like. It doesn't matter. And we even have educators on the show I interviewed. They they openly admitted that testing is really for the teachers and serves so little for the students, right? You want to make sure, especially if you are teaching a class of three, 300, like 200 students, you want to make sure that your teaching is working. So testing is really for the teacher. It doesn't really serve our students that well, other than giving them like so much stress and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I want to go back. So you mentioned that you and your daughter, I know I read on your website on LinkedIn that you guys are working on a book together. So like, uh, like, can you tell us more about that book? Is this coming out or do you have something you can even show us where we can learn more about it? I think we are all fans of your daughter yeah. now and we want to, to, to support her in ways that we can. Let me grab it. It's right here one second it's literally yeah right go here. for it uh, yeah it's not this is like this is the uh the rough draft um but since i have it just because it was on my daughter's desk it's called the rosette and it's essentially it's a graphic novel that she started this was the other like here's here's one of the most of them are not colored i don't know if you can see Aww. that so it's essentially it's a it's a superhero graphic novel. Um, we wrote it when we were traveling. This was all her idea. Um, let's see if there's let's see if I can find another good page. Um, the idea was is that again how to how to reach her age group or an age group below her at the time she was twelve um, to talk about wildlife conservation. Um, wildlife extinction through, she loves Marvel. She loves superheroes. So this is about a superhero teenage girl who can shapeshift into animals. And she has a sidekick who is a snow leopard because she has a sidekick. She has a stuffed animal snow leopard that she's had since she was four. And the snow leopard came with us around the world, like our our little uh, uh, mascot, our mascot, her best friend. Um, and the snow leopard in the in the graphic novel is the mentor of of the superhero, the Rosette. And so when and he basically comes to her as a little girl and teaches once she, her superhero her superhero powers start to emerge. Uh, the snow leopard takes her to what's called the agency and the agency 
is run by wildlife animals and it's like an MI6 run by animals and they're trying to save the world from the sixth extinction and she she is the uh, the one human who you know was like prophesized to you know mm -hmm. help the animal kingdom and so when bad when when uh, when there's evil around her skin erupts in rosettes like a snow leopard so she's called the rosette and her very first um, her very first um, street art project before the wheat pasting with Diana was a series of, of stencils that were snow leopard prints. Mm -hmm. And it was because they were, were silver snow leopard prints based upon the snow leopard. Um, so most of the pages are, are um, just, they're just black and white. They're, they're, they've never been, uh, colored. So where the where the graphic novel is is it's illustrated by a Colombian woman, Devin's other mentor, Maria Prieto, um, who lives in New York. She came with us to Borneo, and so when she came with us to Borneo, uh, Devin and her worked through a lot of the, the character uh, descriptions. And then while we were traveling, we had Skype messages back and forth around Devin would sketch out on napkins, how she wanted certain scenes to look. We'd take mm -hmm. pictures, send them to Mariana. Mariana would illustrate, send them back, and photos back and forth, WhatsApp discussions. Um, so Mariana illustrated it. Devin wrote it. Um, and now we just need to raise the money to hire an illustrator. Uh, sorry, a colorist. We need to hire someone to color it. And mm -hmm. then find a publisher. Incredible. The idea is that Series. This one is like the, this is like the inception of the superhero, the origin story. But the idea is that there would be one set in Namibia, one in Borneo, one in Argentina, like one in each of the places that Devin did the research. Yeah. Wow. So. Incredible. I can't wait to, to support this and be a part of this. Yeah. Yeah. So here, I think uh, we, I think, uh, cause we lost you for a second. I think there are two things you wish oh, no, to happen. No. One is, one is stop standardized exam testing. What's the other one you said? And uh, I think that's what he missed. Yeah. Whoa, uh, art, K through 12 required art class, uh, K through 12, whatever that is, whether that's painting, drawing, welding, sculpture, pottery, but everyone should have to do art K through 12 of some sort. I think the world, we know it helps math. We know that art helps uh, empathy and compassion. It helps self-expression, it helps confidence. Uh, I think, you know, Wall Street would be a lot better if all those men in Wall Street had to have done art K through 12. I mean, I, I so agree. Lots of research has backed this up, right? Like I, I, I know yeah. many, quite a few studies from Adobe, they were talking about how important it is for our students to have that creativity, that artistic expression. It is so important. And that business people can definitely benefit a lot. You know, look at Steve Jobs. He's such a visionary in terms of designing like artistic expressions. So I agree. I think those two wishes are really, really, really powerful. Yeah. Wow. What like I can't believe it has been an hour. What what a fascinating conversation. Oh. You are inspiring people from all over the globe right now and uh, this is great and so share with us Shannon where can people 
learn more about you and they want to support your art do you guys do you guys have a GoFundMe page or like you know so so give us more information that we can support you so um I just I just started a Patreon page for mm -hmm. my street art and community art, which is kind of the art that I put out into the world. Um, and that there is a GoFundMe page for the Rosette, um, mm -hmm. but that, um, which is on the Endangered Activism page. Um, mm -hmm. My website is my name. Sh oh, there we go, ShannonGalpin.com. Um, that would have ever, all the information um, that has a link to endangeredactivism.org, which is the has information about endangered activism. But um, yeah, you can support my art through Patreon. Um, most of that goes out into the community. So that's going out into the world to help support community arts, um, street arts, and um, the rosette. The rosette is really the big kind of next step. Um, you know, in terms of something that we need to kind of self fund to get a colorist and help us get a publisher. And then we can inspire more kids to care about uh, the environment and wildlife extinction. Incredible. I think what a what a really powerful school project, you know, from like caring about this to actually go to the field and interview those people and then create a book. Yeah. When do you think that you also mentioned uh, you guys are working on a documentary, like about yeah, like, based so on the interviews? That's the other thing of getting funding. That's something we're not going to try to crowdfund because it's just so hard, but we do need to find funding. We have all of the footage shot because that was shot mm -hmm. in the field. Um, and we have all the, that, so that's basically just finding the funding to get an editor uh, working with us um, and get that out. That The goal is to get that out at the end of this year so that the graphical and the video, um, which would be using all of the field footage um, of all these incredible experts, but interviewed from a youth perspective, um, and getting that out at the end of this year. Um, and Devin was just was just announced last week, so I'll share some good news, which shows that that world schooling, homeschooling, uh, is, is a good thing. She was just made a student member of the Explorers Club. Um, Aww. Yeah, congratulations. Proud, proud <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know, it was a real. It, it, it's a real kind of, um, well, one, it's a huge honor, but it's also something that shows that, you know, for something that's based, you know, in science and exploration, um, it shows that, you know, we can do these things. We can, we can um, allow our children to learn by, by driven by, you know, through curiosity. And oh, so the hope is that we create the, these storytelling mechanisms that inspire more kids to, to learn about science to care about the world, to learn about climate change and solutions um, that are not also just driven through a Western perspective, that are showing the solutions that are happening through other countries and that those local solutions um, are how we need to learn. Yeah, wow, this is so powerful. It reminds me of, you know what, uh, Albert Einstein, he said that I'm not like smart i'm just more curious than most people i stay with problems longer and it is so fascinating to see you and your daughter having this inside out approach to education which i think is the way that we should be approaching education not outside you know look at this curriculum that curriculum but everything's driven by her passion by your passion what you are interested in and 
And you can see how much she has like thrived on this journey, which is so inspiring. I think not only to other children, but almost all the people here are like older people. Everyone is just like so inspired and uh, really wonderful, inspiring story. So thank you. Thank you so much for spending an hour with us, Shannon. And yeah, definitely everyone check out her and uh, follow her daughter and check out more of their work and support them if you can. I think that will make means a lot to her and to all of us, you know, create a better society and better environment for us and the next generation. So, yeah, thank you so much for a great interview, Shannon. And thank you so much, everyone in the live audience joining us from all over the globe. I hope you are inspired by her story. Definitely give this a share. And I'm sure the story can inspire uh, many other people. So thank you so much, everyone. Have a great weekend. And thank you so much again, Shannon. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye.